Hello and welcome to the Becker's Healthcare CEO and CFO Virtual Forum. We are so excited to have you join us for today's session titled, A Good Hard Look at Hospitals' Competition. Hospitals have been the focal point of the U.S. healthcare system for the past century and they have forged new partnerships during the pandemic. However, healthcare continues to evolve as patients' needs change and non-traditional market entrants focus attention on making healthcare more efficient and less costly. I'm Laura Deirda, an editor with Becker's Healthcare, and I will be your moderator for the panel today. It's my pleasure to introduce our panelists. We have Dr. Mark Boom, President and CEO of Houston Methodist, Chuck Robb, Senior Vice President and CFO of St. Luke's Health System in Kansas City, Missouri, and Dr. Hal Paz, Executive Vice President and Chancellor for Health Affairs at The Ohio State University and CEO of Ohio State Wexner Medical Center here for our discussion today. Before we begin, I will turn the floor over to our panelists to tell them briefly about, tell us a briefly about their backgrounds. Dr. Boom, let's begin with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Greetings, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark Boom. I am the President Chief Executive Officer of Houston Methodist. We're a uh, eight hospital system, ultimately, uh, a large uh, academic medical center, flagship hospital, number one in the state of Texas per U.S. News and World Report, and six community hospitals plus a long-term acute care hospital. Uh, about 800 employed physician group as part of that, a research and academic institute, uh, and a global arm as well um, to everything that we do. Thank you, Dr. Boom. And Dr. Paz, I'd love to hear from you next. Thank you very much, Laura. So uh, Dr. Hal Paz, um, as you heard, uh, Chancellor for Health Affairs at the Ohio State University and CEO of the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. So Ohio State Wexner Medical Center is the organization that brings together seven hospitals across Ohio State, including the James Cancer Hospital, one of the largest cancer hospitals in the nation, our College of Medicine, a large physician group practice, a health plan, and ACO. And in addition to that, we have uh, seven colleges of the health sciences here on the campus, uh, the largest, virtually the largest academic health science campus in the nation with roughly 10,000 students. Um, we also have 18 affiliated hospitals across uh, central Ohio that participate with us in delivering care to a broad geographic community across the state. Our focus is on transforming the uh, Wexner Medical Center from a traditional health system to a health platform where we can reach into uh, individuals' homes, deliver care both virtually and digitally, and to create a health platform of the future to educate these 10,000 students and inter interdisciplinary teams around the way that healthcare will be delivered in the future, as opposed to perhaps the way it's been delivered in the past. Prior to joining Ohio State, I was executive vice president and chief medical officer of Aetna, which then became CVS Health Aetna, and uh, served in that role for several years. Prior to that, my background is in academic medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Paz. And now, Chuck, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your background as well. Sure, I'm Chuck Robb. I'm Senior Vice President and CFO of St. Luke's Health System in Kansas City. We uh, operate 18 hospitals and campuses centered around our academic medical center, which is in Kansas City, Missouri, and about a 100-mile radius. And uh, St. Luke's has been a leader in healthcare for almost 150 years in this area and operates uh, dozens of physician practices, a wide variety of services, uh, we're the third largest employer in the area and uh, have a very large footprint in uh, Kansas City and surrounding area. Thank you all so much for being here today. This is really an impressive group and I'm excited for our discussion. 
Let's get right to the heart of the matter. What competitive forces attract your attention most these days? Dr. Boom, I want to start with you, and then I would love to hear from Dr. Paz and Chuck as well. Certainly. Well, thanks for the, the question. Let me, let me give you a little perspective in, in Houston. Houston's a pretty unique market. Uh, our flagship uh, academic medical center is located in the Texas Medical Center, and really outside of HCA, which is a for-profit chain, obviously, here in Houston, the rest of the hospital-based market is based, literally, I can look outside my window and see most of them. So two very large uh, uh, systems that are throughout our, uh, our city, another a smaller system throughout our city, uh, cancer hospital, pediatric hospital, uh, two uh, medical schools that are right here with the bulk of their activities, but another couple that are uh, kind of involved a little more peripherally. So it's a very unique setting. And, uh, you know, one of the things we always talk about philosophically is how important competition is. I'm a firm believer that when hospitals compete with each other, uh, patients win. So when we compete on the fundamental safety, quality, service, patients are the big winners. Um, what's more unique, of course, in the last uh, number of years is many non-hospital entrants and, and uh, grabbing our attention. Now, that's a moving target. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, some of the urgent care centers and, and uh, uh, employer-based clinics and CVS and other type clinics like that that have been one major force that we watch. Certainly a potential for disrupting some of the front-end primary care relationships, longitudinal relationships that are out there. But to be honest, when you ask the question the way you do of who catches my attention the most, it's when I start to hear about an Apple or an Amazon or a Google or others like that who are, you know, obviously incredibly sophisticated, successful in almost everything that they've touched, very innovative, and obviously, uh, you know, with, with balance sheets and the ability to spend, uh, you know, a great deal. Um, so we've looked at that, and our goal's always been to figure out how to, you know, if you can't beat them, kind of join them, and use that as a tool to work with them to enhance the care for the citizens of Houston and beyond. So we've got partnerships in place with every one of those that I just mentioned with our Center for Innovation, uh, and we'll continue to do so with a number of other creative institutions. Clearly, we all have to figure out how to fill the gaps in care that are so omnipresent in our society. COVID uh, really heightened that and actually also underscored that over the last year. Uh, but also then how do we tackle the, the cost problem? And there's many opportunities to do that. Last thing I'll say is, you know, the consumer is really saying to us, we wanna be met where we wanna be met. You know, we don't want the traditional bricks and mortar. We don't wanna deal with parking garages. We don't wanna to drive to physician offices. COVID accelerated that um, even more. And so our goal is to meet the consumer and the patient ultimately where they wanna be met. One thing we have as hospital systems, it's very unique. Um, one is of course we care for the sickest of the sick and the ICU population. The other is we still will have that trust locally as well as the longitudinal relationship that is so necessary for so many people. And I think there's a way to craft a win-win for everybody so that all of those new entrants work together with the existing uh, uh, people to, and institutions to basically make sure that we improve access as well as improve cost. That's a great point in terms of looking at the competitors and potential competitors as somebody who would then be a partner in helping overall improve the care healthcare system and care delivered to patients. So thank you so much for that overview, Dr. Boom. Now, Dr. Paz, is there anything else that you're seeing or any other forces that are really attracting your attention today? Yeah, I would say to summarize, I think there are three buckets, so to speak, of, of the way that health and healthcare is being approached and delivered. One are the traditional models. We have three adult systems here in the greater Columbus region in central Ohio, uh, which is the largest uh, now fastest growing geographic region in Ohio outside of uh, 
uh, the cities of uh, uh, Cleveland and Cincinnati. And uh, the state capital, which has grown uh, enormously over the past several years, is now surpassing those other cities in terms of overall population growth and size. So we have these traditional models of care delivery. In addition to that, we have Nationwide Children's Hospital, which is our academic home for our Department of Pediatrics, which is a superb organization that continues to grow as well. The second bucket are the payers, and uh, the payers are also uh, evolving and changing, something I know all too well given my previous role, and we're seeing them now enter spaces that typically had been in the domain of traditional uh, healthcare uh, systems and, and, some, and providers in general. And then the third are the, the tech companies, the disruptors, as it's been called, entering into the healthcare space in various ways. I would include in there uh, the pharmacy chains, for example, as well, looking for opportunities to deliver care uh, in a comprehensive way across the spectrum of needs, being much more consumer facing and thinking about this as a retail experience to some degree as well. Those three entities are all evolving and changing. As I mentioned at the outset, we're changing and evolving rather dramatically, uh, and we're no longer a bricks and mortar uh, large health system operation. So we're changing and we're going in both of those directions. But I would say the, the most important point, in as much as there's competition, and we do compete with the other adult health systems in this market, we also find opportunities for collaboration. We also find opportunities for collaboration with payers, and we're certainly collaborating heavily with the so-called disruptors of, of healthcare, the non-traditional entrants into the market. The fact of the matter is, and I think it's been underscored by the pandemic, the issue in my mind isn't about competition. There isn't enough healthcare to go around. We've just seen evidence of this day after day after day. The greatest, the greatest burden we carry as a nation is the waste in the system and the experience that individuals and patients have in terms of accessing these systems. I think we have an enormous opportunity through collaboration to identify ways to take out that waste and to focus on what really matters in terms of health and well-being. And we know that healthcare per se probably attributes to only about 20% of an individual dying a premature death or on some survey they fill out indicating that they have excellent health and an excellent state of well-being. There is so much we can tackle and maybe later we can talk about the collaborations that are going on in this market to help achieve that endpoint for the communities that we serve. Yeah, I think that's a great point in terms of looking at the need for healthcare being so great and yet, you know, really where there are the opportunities to work and collaborate and eliminate some of the waste so that, you know, your system as well as all others are able to most effectively care for patients. I think, Chuck, I'd love to hear from your perspective as well. Is there anything that we haven't yet mentioned that would really be an important aspect of competition for health systems today? It's kind of a different uh, perspective and the, uh, something that's come back into some markets now and has in Kansas City that hasn't been here since the 90s is the narrow networks uh, driven mostly by employers. But um, that's introduced uh, a competition between health systems at a level that, that hasn't existed for a number of years. And while those uh, the employers are driving that to reduce costs, they're willing to accept less access sometimes networks with uh, only a fraction of the physicians in the community in them. So it'll just be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, it kind of died out the last time it came through because our 
consumers are used to accessing who they want and as our colleagues have said, uh, when they want and where they want. And that, that really doesn't work in a, in a very controlled narrow network uh, setup. So we'll, we'll see how that evolves. Yeah, that's a great point in terms of looking at how some of these different forces, market forces especially, have been affecting competition in healthcare. Dr. Paz, I want to go back to you briefly. Could you talk a little bit about some um, forces that you once thought would be competitive or, or more of a competitor and then they didn't really live up to the early impressions or the hype? Well, I would say for me, the, probably the most important set of events occurred last year with the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And um, the three adult systems partnered together to really address the pandemic uh, through organizing ourselves in ways to make sure that we had adequate inpatient bed space, that we were going out and, and doing adequate amounts of testing. Uh, the, the three health systems um, uh, took over the Columbus Convention Center and turned it into an 1100 bed hospital. Should we get to uh, surge level three because we wanted to make sure that we were prepared. So here you have three competitors working at a high level of collaboration. We didn't wait for FEMA to come in. We didn't wait for the National Guard to come in. We did this on our own. And then once we got that nailed down, we went to uh, all the surrounding counties in central and southeast Ohio, which included 40 community hospitals to create a region-wide network so that we could mobilize and we could move patients to where we had adequate capacity to care for them. We did this around the time that we saw the enormous first surge in New York City. We were exceptionally concerned about all the challenges that those systems faced. And we didn't want to have our health systems start to fail because we were overwhelmed individually with patients. And this level of collaboration really, drives back to something that's existed in Columbus for well over a decade, going on two decades, which is called the Columbus Way. Um, there were senior leaders in the community that felt it was exceptionally important to have industries, to have healthcare entities, to have nonprofits collaborate for the betterment of the community and the region. And that, that philosophy, that ethos has permeated everything that's done here in Columbus. And it really set the stage for us to jump into identifying opportunities for collaboration that I'll tell you quite frankly would have been much, much harder if that culture didn't exist here in the community. And we continue to look for opportunities to collaborate while at the same time we remain competitors and we understand um, why we compete and we understand that it actually is beneficial to have competition, but at the same time, we are all nonprofits and we all realize that we serve a public good here in this very, very broad geographic region. And our responsibility to do that is to find opportunities for collaboration as well. That's a great point to really point out how, you know, there are competitive forces, but then on the flip side, you know, you don't always know the opportunities to partner until you get into more of a crisis mode as we have been in the past year. Uh, Dr. Boom, I, I want to know your perspective, especially I know you mentioned earlier being able to partner with some of the technology companies and, and other potential non-traditional uh, entrants into the healthcare market. Were there any of those that really you thought, hey, this is going to be a significant disruptor and then it ended up not really panning out the way you anticipated? 
You know, it, that's, that's a moving target. Um, obviously, the press has been all over the place. You know, I mean, it's been all over the press in the last couple of weeks about Haven. Um, you know, that's one where we all looked at it, said, okay, here come three gorillas into our markets. If you, if you remember back to when they announced three years ago, the public markets in healthcare plummeted. So, right, the public markets said, oh, this is going to be terrible for everybody. And they all plummeted. They started creeping back up. And here, three years later, you know, after a lot of us kept wondering, you know, what exactly are they doing? Um, you know, they, they folded. So I think one message there is that this is really hard, right? We've all been in healthcare for a long time, focusing on cost, focusing on, focusing on access. There's no easy solutions. And so this kind of idea that people run into, a, you know, and disrupt a market to the degree that the Silicon Valley has disrupted some other markets, I think, um, is probably a little naive. Um, and that actually the way to do that is through partnering. So let me give you another um, kind of analogy, right? So Amazon comes out and Amazon obviously radically disrupts obviously so many industries, right? But who's their main competitor right now? It's Walmart. Why is Walmart their main competitor? Because Walmart was able to add the digital side um, but it had the last mile, right? It has a lot of the delivery system and, and the stores. So Amazon, as I understand, it goes out and buys, you know, Whole Foods and a bunch of other things. If you think about it, there's no dynamic out there right now that's going to change the fact that for most major healthcare, people need hospitals. There's still admissions. You walk through one of our hospitals right now, they're massive ICUs, basically, and more and more so every day. That's not to diminish the hospital at home and, and some other things that will impact that, no question. But the reality is we're still that kind of capital intensive last mile. And so we can get disrupted by being a capital intensive last mile um, and that's a risk, or we can work together with some key partners um, and help them uh, you know, sort of shore up what we do. And that frankly has been our philosophy. You know, the other piece that I still haven't quite ever been able to get my head around when you ask the question in terms of things that haven't quite grabbed hold. I mean, it's been, I don't know, 10 to 15 years I've been hearing about you know, consumer driven sort of retail health clinics and other things like that. And, and we've seen starts and stops and starts and stops through that. I think it's finally taking hold, but quite honestly, I think that's much more a digital realm probably going forward than some of the, uh, you know, that, that model. Much of that model was predicated on driving foot traffic into stores, um, which, you know, has proven to be plus minus for many of them. So again, I think that's an opportunity for us to, again, meet the consumer where they want to be met and to partner with some of those organizations over time. Got it. That makes a lot of sense in terms of looking at the healthcare landscape, some of those technology or retailers and really, you know, where the hospital and health systems brick and mortar positions are in addition to what they're able to do digitally with partnerships and, and other things um, to expand their care. So thank you for going through that. Chuck, I wanted to ask you about um, competition during the pandemic, but first, do you have anything to add to this discussion about competitors or competitive forces that didn't really pan out? I would just echo the, those comments about some of the disruptors that haven't panned out as quickly as, as we uh, thought they might, and just say that it seems like they've underestimated the uh, value of the long-term personal relationships between caregivers and, uh, and patients. And uh, those have proven to be harder to disrupt than, than people might have expected. Absolutely, that's a great point. Do you think, um, just quickly before we move on, in those relationships, do you think that'll at all change as millennials get older, as Gen Z gets older? Do you think some of those principles with uh, 
the relationship with physicians and clinicians will stay the same with some of the younger generations? It's hard to say, but I think to the extent that we provide that access uh, through a variety of tools, uh, on uh, online, uh, on the mobile phone, uh, in any way that they are comfortable accessing those relationships, I think there's a chance they can continue. We need to change with the times, and, and many of us have. You know, I'll, I'll jump in there. I mean, as a primary care physician, you know, I'm a little biased, but <laughs> those long-term relationships are some of the most meaningful I've forged in my life, and I'd like to think so for patients as well. I still see a smattering. Um, and you know, when you're 20 and 25 and 30, I don't have that many in-depth relationships, but once people start to have issues, chronic disease, et cetera, I do believe relationships become an important part. So I think again, back to that point, we need to be able to offer the whole array of how do people wanna meet us. If they're 25 and they just wanna pop in and out with a virtual visit because their knee hurts and they need to figure that out or come into a physical visit, we gotta be there for them. But when they're 40 and starting to have chronic issues or wherever that is, we need to be there for them as well, but we need to digitally enable that to where we do a much, much better job of continually connecting with those people over time, kind of managing their health, um, much of it digitally, um, longitudinally that we did honestly don't do a good enough, enough job at these days. So I just would, I would add, I, and I certainly agree with my colleagues and, you know, we've put our, our money literally um, where our mouth is. So we're in the process right now of building an 820 bed bed tower for University Hospital, a $2 billion project. Most of that, a lot of that will be critical care space. It'll be space that allows us to put patients in isolation and a negative flow. I mean, you understand after all this, why that's so vitally important and why we can't have ad antiquated inpatient hospital space. So we're, we're betting $2 billion on that. We're also building three large ambulatory care buildings, each one roughly 250 to 300,000 square feet of space, which will be home to our specialists and subspecialists and operating rooms in the outer belt around Columbus. Because again, we believe that, you know, for as long as we can see into the future, care will be delivered that way. But at the same time, I have two millennial kids who are working and um, they haven't been to a bank in I don't know how long, if ever, and they do all their banking over their phones. They don't, you know, stand at a street corner waving at yellow taxi cabs. They call one up on their phone and they certainly don't spend as much time. And this is one of the retail capitals of the country going into those big box stores. They're doing more and more of that. Over, uh, over Amazon or having it delivered by UPS and FedEx. That's what their world looks like. It's hard for me to imagine when they have the opportunity and can make a choice that they're gonna choose to drive 30, 40 minutes. They're gonna choose to go up six stories in a parking deck. They're gonna choose to walk across the bridge to sit in a waiting room to wait you know, 15 minutes, hopefully no more than that, but sometimes a lot longer to be seen for a 15 minute visit where until we straighten out a lot of issues with EHRs and whatnot, to spend 15 minutes of quality time with that outstanding primary care doctor that Mark was referring to. It's challenging and we realize that and we know the millennials are gonna have a different set of expectations. So I, I truly believe we have to do both. We have to create an experience for all of our patients that really address their health and their well-being. That's what they want. And getting back to the question you asked earlier, 
I think that's where some of the entrants into the market have been really challenged because it's easy to define healthcare delivery. It's harder to define what are the ingredients in health and well-being. And if you don't understand that and you're not offering something that addresses what's of greatest critical importance, I think it's hard to pull it off, frankly. So that's where I see a lot of this going. I think that, you know, we have done um, the system, I'll say, not any of us, but the system per se has done a good job for years of flattening that curve of technology. Um, and as a result of the pandemic, that, that flattening has been taken off. We've gone from doing 50 telehealth visits a month here to doing 2,800 a day. And we ramped up in a matter of weeks. Why couldn't have that happened before? Well, I can give you a lot of reasons. They were payments, they were regulatory, and frankly, just a comfort zone with doing what we were doing. And some very quickly, that comfort zone moved. The needs to address our patients moved quickly, and there was an opportunity to respond. I think we're going to see more and more of that as a result of this pandemic. Often we overestimate the impact of change on the short term and underestimate it on the long term. We're going to see now for years and even decades the impact of this once in a century horrific event. And I think we're going to see the healthcare environment change as a result of it as well. Yeah, I think those are all excellent points in terms of how the healthcare delivery changed and so many aspects of healthcare changed during the pandemic. Um, Chuck, during these moments of national crisis and in public health crisis, um, how do you change the way you evaluate competition if you do it all? I think it was just uh, just said it, it really accelerated all the electronic aspects of it. And that was, uh, there was a lot of regulatory relief, uh, a lot of opportunities to do things across state line that, that weren't allowed before. Uh, there was reimbursement for things that weren't allowed, you know, it was not there before. And so it went both ways. It let us move further out and do more work, do help more people, but it also allowed others from outside to come into the market and do the same. So it, it really moved things along and was a nice uh, boost for all of us. We were able to respond to it pretty quickly because we were doing a lot of telemedicine in the rural areas already. We just had not done it in the metros because the reimbursement was not permitted generally. So that gave us the opportunity to start doing that. But again, it, it, it cuts both ways and uh, folks from other places could start doing that too. So that'll, that'll make us all better. And do you see these types of partnerships that were forged during the pandemic lasting? Or do you think there's something that, you know, hey, we were brought together by this amazing moment of need. And now, you know, there's just not really as much of the impetus to be able have those types of partnerships we're going to more return to competitors than partners well, I, I think they can continue if there's value for for all parties i mean we have to evaluate uh it has to be a win-win and if there's an opportunity to do something better together and maybe address a market that individually we couldn't then then of course and if if, if a crisis passes and the demand changes and there's no longer a, a model there then it'll it'll fix itself. So, you know, I, I, um, I mentioned earlier that I, I, we have this philosophy that says when hospitals compete on safety, quality, service, patients win. 
our philosophy has always been when we collaborate on academics, so the research, the educational programs, the patients are the winners as well. And so you see that actively across the Texas Medical Center. We have a history of collaborating to build a, a kind of an ecosystem uh, around, uh, you know, uh, investment in innovation and other things like that. We also, uh, unfortunately, have a long history of dealing with crises. So, you know, floods and hurricanes and other things that our part of the country gets hit. But those are usually short-lived events for a couple of weeks and everybody goes about their merry business. We've been collaborating across all those institutions. I mean, I was on daily calls for so long and now it's a couple times a week calls. Um, and I, um, you know, one of the things we did was put together a COVID dashboard um, that it's, it's the best data set for our region because it's 80% of the hospital market share uh, for adults and probably 95, 98% for pediatrics. And so it really is very real time data standardized in a way you can't get from the city, county, state, any other, any other authority. And so it's been our best data source for our whole community. Um, and I think, and I'm really optimistic about that continued collaboration going forward. Obviously the research and education side, but you know, and we've all begun this and we did this very well after Tropical Storm Allison 20 years ago where we hardwired improvements so we don't have things happen again. And so how we as a community get ready going forward, God forbid there's another pandemic and it could even be a bug that's obviously worse than this one. That's, that's, a, that's one issue. And then of course, this was the year where, you know, we all had to look in the mirror and say, what is our role within the realm of diversity, equity, inclusion, and what we've seen this crisis in our community, and particularly then as hospital systems and healthcare systems, our role in, you know, really eliminating healthcare disparities, dealing with social determinants of health, et cetera, a large part of which, of course, is coverage related. So in Texas, that's a major focus of ours, uh, you know, legislatively and otherwise. And I think that's a place where there's, you know, desperate need for ongoing collaboration going forward as well, so that we lead that for our community and really improve the health of our community broadly. That's a great point. Thank you so much, Dr. Boone, for going through, you know, how your health system has really been a focal point for partnerships across the region and what's been different about the pandemic versus some of the other crisis moments that, that you've responded to. Dr. Paz, do you have anything to add there in terms of um, what types of collaborations really you were able to do over the past year and what you think will stick, which ones might go back to the old ways of uh, competing versus partnerships? Any thoughts on that? I, I would say most, I'd be surprised if we go back to the way that things were. I think that we're on a, on a new trajectory as an industry as a result of, of many issues. And you heard one just a second ago, which are the, the social determinants of health and, and, um, and health disparities. And uh, quite frankly, we've said here earlier in the pandemic that, that racism is a social determinant of health and that we have to address this. Um, I think that the organizations that you have here this afternoon as nonprofits are really well positioned to work with local community agencies, with governmental entities to really address those social determinants of health, behavioral and environmental determinants of health, because we know that in aggregate, they make up something close to about 60, 70% of one's overall health status and, and actually have a disproportionate impact on life expectancy. So we're well positioned to do it. I think it's much easier, quite frankly, for our organizations to create those partnerships and collaborations. And I know from my former life, those are opportunities for us to partner with payers, frankly, 
and to work with um, new entrants into the healthcare space. We, we announced our partnership earlier this year with One Medical, or last year, we're in January of 2021, but in, 19, in 2020, we announced our partnership with One Medical uh, to do ambulatory care uh, sites, primary care sites here across uh, the central Ohio region because we saw that as a way to improve access and to work with employers. And I think that, you know, that's a conversation that had a lot of, uh, a lot of attention in the past. I think we're gonna be hearing a lot more about that going forward. How do entities like ours work closely with employers, either through health plans directly or through other mechanisms in the community to address the health and well-being of their workforce? Particularly now as the way that work has been done traditionally is being reorganized. And I don't see that changing either. I think that we're gonna see a shift to work from home, even though uh, once we're on the other side of this pandemic, individuals will be back in the workspace. It'll just be very different. So for employers, this will be uh, an increasingly great challenge for their workforce, for the dependence of that workforce. And this is a huge opportunity for us to step in and help address that because if we do it successfully, we address the well-being of the overall community as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Paz. To briefly sum up some of the points that we've made here today, it sounds like hospitals and health systems have had great partnerships with many different entities um, in the past before the pandemic, whether they be other healthcare organizations, technology companies, retailers, or other non-traditional entrants. Um, the pandemic was able to accentuate current partnerships and then accelerate um, potential partnerships or new partnerships in order to respond to what's going on. And then thirdly, really looking at, you know, whether those partnerships will change. It sounds like there's an appetite for a lot of those partnerships to continue to grow and develop within the healthcare system as healthcare becomes, you know, more digital and more um, outpatient and more, you know, meeting the patients where they are, consumers where they are, in addition to having the bricks and mortars for those who really need those and that level of care and that type of care. I think this has been a really fascinating discussion, especially talking about how some of the recent developments with um, some of the non-traditional entrants really are expected to evolve in the coming years. So I appreciate that very much. I have one more question for you before we wrap up the discussion. Um, and this will be for all panelists, starting with you, Chuck. What is one thing you wish more people understood about competition in healthcare today? I think it's the point that has uh, been made a couple of times already today that competition makes us all better. Uh, it's nothing to be uh, concerned about. There can be uh, lots of cooperation and competition at the same time. Dr. Boom, what are your final thoughts about healthcare competition? Anything you wish people knew that that isn't really a common thought today? You know, I, we hear a lot of talk about scale and the pros and cons of scale. And, you know, oftentimes people confuse scale with uh, either more competitive or, or anti-competitive. We hear the, a lot of rhetoric around that. But it, all you have to do is look at this last 12-month period, almost now with COVID, and see the benefit of scale. I, I, I'm positive because I've talked to a million people like me across the country and my colleagues here. Um, if we didn't have the scale we had, the sophistication we had, the multiple sites, the physician offices, everything else that we're able to do and knit together, some of the vertical and horizontal integration that was there, 
COVID would have gone very, very differently for our communities. Um, it was a critically important asset. And so, you know, as we see some of that rhetoric, um, scales what allows us to be creative, scales what allows us to be flexible, scales what allows us to partner with other organizations and have the sophistication to do that. And so obviously not to a point where you have consolidation dramatically, but to where we have scale, um, I think that is a critically part of the competitive landscape going forward. Thank you so much, Dr. Boom. And Dr. Paz, what are your final thoughts on healthcare competition? What do you wish more people understood? Yeah, I think the most important takeaway is that competition in healthcare has changed from being a, a two-dimensional, this organization competes with that organizational to much more three-dimensional chess, where there are multiple layers, multiple entrants, all competing with each other in different ways. And that the greatest opportunity we have is to identify partnerships between those various participants where it makes great sense so that we can advance the public good in this nation of improved health and well-being for everyone. It is the largest opportunity we have in the United States to provide affordable, high-quality outcomes for everyone we serve. And I truly, truly believe the best way we can get there is through effective partnering. No matter where an entrant is coming from, no matter what industry they're in, Ultimately, they all share a responsibility in terms of health and well-being, and I hope that is the path we take going, future, going into the future in all of our communities. Dr. Paz, Dr. Boom, and Chuck, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciated your time, and I know our audience has as well. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank, thank you. you.